from our palatial recording studios high atop our mountain lair on a remote volcanic island. This is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. And I'm Eliza, your co-host. This is our show for Wednesday, May 17th, 2017. Tonight's topic is biological computing. Sounds like a fascinating topic. We have some interesting things to talk about with biological computing. This is going to be a show that will really change your perceptions about computers, computing, and what it's all about. When we think of computing, we often think of things like uh, calculator chips or microprocessors or desktop or laptop PCs or even our cell phones and other devices. We depend on semiconductors for computing, but a lot of people are unaware that for centuries before, there were computing devices. Even the abacus is a computing device, and it's just beads in a frame on wire. Um, There were computing systems that used many different devices, mechanical devices for the most part. Computers before the electronic ones were mostly gears and wheels, and there were mechanical calculators that actually did a lot of math using gears and ratchets and bars with numbers on them. Charles Babbage is well known for his uh, early brass digital computing methods. But, you know, when we talk about computing and we get into the biological end, we don't quite think about the fact that even something as humble as a single cell has the ability to register its environment, make decisions, and look for food and avoid dangers. There's some computing power inside a cell. We're looking at biological computing because it takes us into some new territory. It shows us that nature, biology itself, has all of the elements necessary for handling and processing data and reaching conclusions, and we are just at the infancy of the field, just figuring out how to make biocomputers. Oh, Eliza. What do you need? What is the meaning of biocomputer? A biocomputer is an implantable device that monitors the body's activities or is capable of inducing therapeutic effects, all at the molecular or cellular level. They can be made of groups of cells or RNA, DNA, and proteins, and can perform simple mathematical calculations. So there really is a discipline right now of making biocomputers. We're going to look at the different types of computing that can be done with biology, from uh, cells to neurons to even bacteria, and DNA and RNA molecules and proteins. And I think that uh, in the end, you'll come away with a real appreciation for the fact that nature invented really complex computing and data storage millions and millions of years ago. So let's start out with the obvious things. Now, when we talk about biocomputing, a lot of the times we think about brains and neurons. Now, neurons are an interesting example of a type of cell. They're self-organizing, they're self-training, and brains are structured from neurons. Now, the question that might arise is, is a neuron digital or analog? And the answer is, it's a hybrid of the two. Brains um, use neurons, of course, almost exclusively for their computation. There are other cells involved in the process. But neurons have a property of making digital pulses or firings. And the issue is the ticking or firing of the neuron does carry information. It means that it's reached a decision. But there's a secondary layer of information hidden in there, and it's the spacing between the clickings or firings. So there's a time-based element. The neuron, when being stimulated at a low level, will tick along at a slower rate than a neuron that's being strongly stimulated, and it will fire at a very rapid rate. Now, we can see that the analog nature is in the time encoding of the clicks, and the digital nature is in the clicks themselves. So neurons are hybrid computing devices. 
when they are stimulated with the right patterns of inputs, they fire. And they fire very rapidly. After a while, however, they will fatigue and then they will slow down or they'll skip a beat or they will begin to miss the processing of the signals. And this too is information for us. We know that um, if we listened to a word over and over as a child, we would say the word five or six or eight times, it would lose its meaning. And this is because neurons would fatigue in the portion of our brain that recognizes the meaning of that word. Um, Some optical illusions and other effects are based on neural fatigue. But neurons, as we know, are the basic processing elements for most brains. Now, there are other cells, such as Schwann cells, and they help to make the insulating properties of neurons work over their long wiring, their axons. And we have glial cells, and glial cells provide support mechanisms. They appear to handle a lot of the, uh, call it the infrastructure work in the brain, although they do compute as well. So how do we make neurons? If we really wanted to compute in a biological manner, we use actual neurons. Well, that's been done, but of course, what we do as human beings, we puzzle things out and try to make knockoffs. And and one of the earliest neuron knockoffs was known as a neurister. And it was a device based on the transistor that was meant to imitate some of the properties and operation of neurons. So it was a hardware model of a neuron. Uh, Marvin Minsky and others early on in their research in artificial intelligence and thinking built what they called perceptrons. And these were capable of showing us a number of things about the operation of neurons. Perceptrons were basically knockoff neurons used in early learning experiments. And Today, we make software models, neural networks, neural simulations, and they're in use today a lot because they're easy to do. You simply write a program. They're not particularly fast in many cases, but they do work very nicely. Now, what we've discovered from looking at models of neurons, and these aren't biological, but they're just copies in software, when you have failures in a neural network, it shows the same sort of failures that accompany brain maladies like aphasias or dementia or Parkinson's. We now have a much better understanding of what causes these issues in the human brain and other animal brains, and we know what to do about it in many cases, specifically because we made software models and hardware models and neurons, and we played with the networks. Now, biocomputing, on the other hand, sounds like something futuristic and out of reach, but actually it's already been here for quite some time. What is a biocomputer? Well, as Eliza said, it's, a, it's generally an implantable device, and it looks at the body's activities, and it might, let's say, alter your insulin level or a hormone level in response to need of your body. Sometimes it's made of a group of cells, and sometimes it's RNA and DNA and other materials that actually can perform mathematics, and we'll get into that as well. MIT and other people working there have come up with computers that fit entirely inside a cell, and we will talk about that. They can do mathematics and make decisions on a logical level, which is fascinating. And all of this is very important because, let's face it, computers are reaching, in some ways, the end of the line in density and complexity without making some radical overhaul of our technology. We're reaching a stage where the the individual transistors in the logic circuitry and the memory circuitry are so tiny that quantum noise and subatomic effects are starting to work their way up into the macro world, and they interfere with the ability to store a bit. Um, Bits can switch unexpectedly out of the blue, and we have to have error correction in order to correct that on the fly. And so this is something that, um, if we want our computers to be denser and faster, 
we're going to have to adapt new, to uh, new methods and have some new strategies. And biocomputing is very low power. You're generally not going to have to have a, a cooling fan or a heat sink on a biocomputer. And we'll talk about the neuron-based models very early on here because that's some of the most fascinating stuff. I think you'll be fascinated to see what's been done with it. Starting back in 2002, and as a matter of fact, using a Petri dish and the bottom of the dish covered with tiny electrodes, um, thousands of rat neurons, fetal neural cells, were injected into the dish, and they would organize themselves and grow into a network, wire themselves together, and begin to learn. And you'd be amazed at what they've learned. We'll talk about that in just a moment here. So what are the advantages of biocomputing? Well, number one, it could be compatible to your own body. You could uh, create sensors and devices that can be implanted into a body and operate in concert with it and provide, as stated earlier, therapeutic effects. But it can also do other things as well. And obviously, if we have something that consumes power and you have to have batteries for it, that's a great disadvantage. We want something that's going to run all the time. Biological computers, obviously, can run on the same things that your computer, your brain, does. And that would be the oxygen and glucose in your bloodstream. Um, it doesn't need some external power supply. It doesn't need heating or cooling. It's designed to work within the body. Well, that has a lot of advantages. Um, it doesn't produce electromagnetic noise. Uh, waving a, a magnet by it isn't going to affect it. Uh, it won't forget what it's learned. I know if you wave a, a big magnet by a hard drive, you're going to lose all of your data. Now, flash memories, it's not generally an issue, although it can happen. It's a rarer event with a uh, flash drive than a hard drive. So there are a lot of bulletproof um, properties of biological material. You don't uh, take a big magnet, wave it next to your uh, pet cat, and have it get stupid and fall down. <laughs> that could easily happen with your laptop. So let's look at, obviously, computing with neurons very quickly, because we know they are computing elements. Now, rats, as you know, have often been the staple of, you know, surgeries, experiments, and so on. Well, rat neurons are very easy to obtain, and by putting them together, well, let's see, there's an article that was published in MIT Technology Review, and this was December 2002, just to give you a handle, this is 15 years ago, um, a rat-brained robot. Basically, they took rat neurons and they put them on a silicon wafer inside a Petri dish, and they had numerous electrodes, and the neurons were put in, in a dropper in the solution. They laid themselves out on this uh, array of electrodes and began to connect. And then they sent out tentacles. They send out exploratory um, feelers, and they locate and connect with other neurons. Now, neurons are self-wiring. This is pretty amazing. Uh, imagine throwing a bunch of parts on a table, and they hook themselves up and mate themselves into a robot. Well, we can't do that just yet, but uh, biology does it easily. And in essence, what happened was it grew the brain that operated a small robot. They uh, would use basically sensors, radio control, get the decisions from the rat brain, and then drive the motors on a small robot, about the size of a juice can, nothing really big. And so it's the emergent properties of these self-wiring sets of neurons that make it happen. They don't really know what they're doing, but they compute. And the results can take uh, the control of a motor or a pair of motors to drive the robot around. They can get the data from an ultrasonic or an optical sensor. And they can see 
when the robot's going to hit a wall and avoid it. So this is fascinating because here you've got uh, a little Petri dish and in that dish is essentially a brain and its own ability to self-heal and its plasticity, the ability to learn and rewire itself, is capable of making the brain perform properly. Now you think that's astounding. How can that lead to anything though other than, you know, a rat brain in a Petri dish? Well, in 2005, there was another article about a fellow at uh, University of Florida who put about 30,000, or I'm sorry, 25,000 living neurons in a dish and did the same thing. And the computer that he grew that way learned to fly a simulated aircraft in everything from calm skies to hurricane force winds. So here you have a self-wiring, self-programming computer that learned how to fly a jet plane simulator. Well, you can only imagine DARPA was drooling all over that. And in a very short while, uh, Thomas DeMars, who was a UF assistant professor of biomedical engineering, uh, and he designed the study, uh, pointed out that he was able to simply put these things together and, you know, it would figure out the kinds of computations, such as recognizing unfamiliar pieces of furniture or, you know, the things that were very difficult to program into a computer without a lot of lines of code and a lot of hardware. The, the neurons organize themselves. Well, this is great. Later versions also incorporated the ability for it to run other sensors and other real-world hardware, including operating an arm over the internet remotely. So we now have simple biological computers created in a Petri dish, and at this point, the studies show that they're trying to push it up to 30 million neurons, which would be a very significant brain. Is it conscious? Is it alive? Is it thinking? We don't really know yet, but that is a fascinating question. As of 2010, Kevin Warwick, who is often known as a, um, a cyborg because of the chip he has implanted in his arm and the other things he's done, uh, including a cluster of electrodes that allowed the uh, nerves in his arm to manipulate a robotic arm on another continent, uh, Kevin Warwick has gone on in the uh, University of Reading in England and has actually produced... Uh, 128 electrode array with wrap neurons in it that's driving a computer around. And he's working on the technology to get up to billions of neurons. By going 3D, they can get 30 million. He thinks it may be conscious, and maybe it is. Eliza. Yes, sir. Please introduce the break. I'm Eliza. This is Talk Universe, and we will return after the break. There are more interesting things to hear in a few minutes. You'd better believe it. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. We'll be right back. We'll be talking about other methods of computing biologically in the next segment. Thanks for listening. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Welcome back to Talk Universe. Absolutely. Welcome back. Fascinating things to talk about. You know, we spoke about neurons and the brains that have been created using them. Artificial brains made of rat neurons and petri dishes. And that's pretty fascinating, and they're reaching a point of great complexity. They've also simulated those rat neuron computers in real digital computers, silicon, uh, recently, and they got a model of how it all works. So we've reached a great understanding of neuron circuitry, in part from these experiments, as well as other things. But what about other cells? We know that neurons are electrically active cells that can make logical decisions. And the fact that they're electrical and not chemical in nature means that it's very easy for their signals to use transducers 
like the neurons in the fingertips that measure pressure or temperature, or the ones in the eyes that measure light, and convert that into a signal that these neurons can work with. But what if you had other cells that could use electrical potentials to do calculation? It's been found that some bacteria are capable of doing this as well, which raises an interesting question. Bacteria tend to be hardier than neurons. Neurons have to have very specialized environments in which to stay alive. Bacteria can grow in the cottage cheese in your refrigerator or on the bottom of the sole of your shoe. What if we had the ability to make those bacteria function as neurons and live in any sort of an environment, regardless of the temperatures, pretty much, you know, over a broad range and the conditions, and do so and and be very tough and do our computing for us as well? I think that anybody could see the utility of something that didn't require a high stable temperature and exacting environment. Um, The less delicate something is, the more conducive it is to being used in the real world. While scientists have discovered bacteria that can process electrical signals and make decisions, and by breeding them and working with them, they've been hoping to elongate them, make them produce tendrils and probes that reach out and wire them up. But there are other methods as well. Now think for a moment about a bacterial computer. To make a smarter machine, all you have to do is grow more bacteria and train them. Well, this is a simple process, really. It depends on the complexity of the inputs you make, and by structuring it properly, you could make as many layers of neurons, bacterial neurons, as you wished. Now, this is an interesting thing about biology and computing. You don't just simply throw a mash of cells together and get a result. There has to be a structure. Just as a hammer or a saw or a screwdriver has a specific form that's related to the job it's trying to do, the wiring of an array of neurons or bacterial neurons or synthetic neurons is going to share an underlying structure that matches the job we're trying to achieve. So wiring in layers does an amazing thing to neurons. There's an input layer that makes some primary judgments about what it's sensing and what's going on. Then there are one or two or three layers in the middle called hidden layers. And each of them goes through some unknown series of complex evaluations to sort out some thinking about that job, uh, some processing that gives you reasonable answers. And then the output layer steps in, grabs it, and tells you exactly what it means. Now, this is fascinating. By putting feedback on the system, the signals route their way through those inner hidden layers and begin to configure them to the job properly. They do the job, they learn it, and they wire themselves. Again, this is something that is really amazing. We don't really see this sort of emergence in digital computing unless we have evolving elements in the circuit. But we do see that bacteria can be made to compute. Now, The move to make them more like neurons is one method, but there's another method that works and it's entirely different, and it is this. Researchers have found that they can genetically program the interiors of cells to do calculations. What a fascinating development. Let's talk about cells for a moment and what they do. Now, cells that live independently, such as bacteria or protozoans, have to react to conditions in their environment. They have to be able to move around to the proper temperature, the proper moisture setting. They have to have the ability to sense toxins or food or other things in their environment. 
they should either avoid or be attracted to. Bacteria and protozoans and and all single-celled organisms have sensors for various things that they are likely to encounter, and they also have the ability to make decisions about what they should do when confronted with various conditions. In other words, something as small as a single cell has the ability to sense, respond appropriately, and preserve itself. Not only that, but every cell contains a digital-controlled factory and a record store. All the chromosomes are really digital records storing the instructions for making proteins, enzymes, and histones, and controlling the activities of the cell so that it can properly reproduce, not just survive. There's an entire computer-controlled factory, literally, inside every living cell. So how can it be that we would choose to use something like the capabilities of a neuron when in fact we can have many millions or billions of operations being performed inside the cell with its own hardware. Well, let's put that into perspective. If we looked at the cell's chromosomes as simply being digital storage media, then a single human cell contains about 1.5 gigabytes of data. That's an awful lot of data to put in something so tiny. And we do know how to read and write that information, it just isn't always easy. But that being set aside for the moment, Instead of turning a cell into something as simple as a fancy logic gate, a neuron, perhaps where we should focus isn't there, but instead to the operations inside the cell where we could do some really serious computing and data storage. And that's exactly what many researchers are now doing. So a group at Harvard has looked at exactly this, just storing the information in DNA. And they've been able to jam 700 terabytes of data into a gram of DNA. To put that into perspective, a paperclip has a mass of about 5 grams. This is a thousand times better than the previous record holder. The group, a bioengineer and a geneticist actually, at Harvard's Wyss Institute, have successfully stored 5.5 petabits, or about 700 terabytes, in a gram of DNA. What this happens to mean is that they can take information, store it in short lengths of DNA, and each one is given an address that's 19 bits long. So the information is stored as 96-bit segments with a 19-bit address tagged on one end of it. Instead of using the magnetic regions on a hard drive, you're using the actual bits of the genetic language to store your information. When it's read back, just like sequencing genes for anything else, it's converted back into binary. So a gram of DNA now contains trillions of tiny segments, each containing a 19-bit address and 96 bits of data. When you sequence it, you simply store the sequenced information on a computer and then reassemble it in the proper order. The elegant thing about this is the segments can be short, easily created, and read sections, very simple to make using standard genetic methods these days, and then the tag on the end gives you the page number, so to speak, of the information that you're decoding. One of the things that's important to understand, however, is that storing in DNA is very different from storing it on, let's say, a hard drive or a flash memory. With DNA, the density is very high because each bit is only a few atoms across. It's stored as chemistry. Another thing about DNA storage is it's extremely stable. You can store genetic information for hundreds of thousands of years in a container in your garage, if your garage were around that long. The other thing about it is, what took many years to sequence and read in the Human Genome Project years ago, can now be done actually in a matter of hours. This is because we have microfluidics and laboratories on a chip these days that didn't exist in the original project. 
A final advantage is this. Information stored on a hard drive is planar. It's essentially in a flat, two-dimensional grid. This limits how much storage density you can have in a certain volume. For DNA, it is volumetric. It fits in a beaker. The efficiency is much, much higher in many ways. It's just that today, it isn't incredibly fast to write, but it is very, very stable. But again, this isn't about storage density. It's about actual function. In a paper published in Frontiers in Microbiology in 2014, it was pointed out that bacterial computing, or a form of natural computing, is actually very easy to do. By using switches in genetics, by lining up the strands of DNA and having them switch certain genes on and off, or edit certain genes, you can actually make logical decisions occur. Now, this makes the actual process of computing occur within the mechanisms of the cell using its own logical computing system. By changing the chemistries, by changing genes that can be switched on and off, by tagging specific genes, you can control logical operations. They've actually modeled the proteins as neurons, in a sense. What this allows is switching and decision-making by switching genes. So the chemistry of the cell actually becomes proteins as networks of processing elements. The proteins themselves become your processing elements. Now, you can also model the processes as metabolic hardware. In other words, the metabolites, the chemicals used in the metabolism, are generally intermediate chemicals. They're generated in one sense, they're operated on in a number of steps to finally become some other process. When you studied biology in high school, you may remember some of the processes like the Krebs cycle and other things that happen inside cells. By looking at these processes, they can follow the evolution of molecules from one step to the next and use them as tools to switch or control the flow of information in the cell. So they write genes in the cell that use the molecules within the cell as actual logical elements in this case. By putting thousands or millions of copies of these cells together and having all of them distribute the job across themselves, they can make massively parallel computations occur within bacteria or other simple organisms just by pre-programming the cells to each contain some portion of the problem they're working on. At that stage, it isn't difficult to imagine having specialized biological units that contain cells that are optimized to compute and then distributing the program across the cells and letting them evolve a solution or calculate a solution in just a few minutes or hours, depending on its complexity. What's more interesting is how these organisms can be tailored to work together as a whole. In other words, each is doing its own thing, but just like a pile of ants in a hill performing a task, no single ant really knows what's going on, yet in the end, the object that they are working on is achieved. So how exactly would you program such an array of cells in a biological computer? You might start very well by synthesizing a few strands of genetic information that contain an encoded version of your problem. You then feed it to the cells. As they ingest this genetic material, they would read the encoded message, work on the problem, and then they would produce similar strands of encoded DNA containing a tag with the answer. The number of the cell doing the calculation could be written as a genetic tag on the answer page, and each piece of DNA produced by the cells could literally be an answer sheet. You then read the sea of DNA generated and emitted by the cells, you sequence it, and put the pages together in the proper order, and there's your answer. So, okay, admittedly, this is a naive or very simple explanation of how it would work, 
And in reality, it might not work anything like that. But this is a potential mechanism, a method of doing it. You write your problem as a DNA language on a standard computer. A tiny box, probably not much larger than a pack of mints, would synthesize the strands of DNA and be fed to your biological computation unit. The results, which would be harvested minutes later, would then be read and transcribed back for your answer. Now, we know that there'd probably be a limited number of life cycles for each of these cells, so you probably would have a unit that would go through a programming and computation phase to set up long before the project is actually taken on by the group of cells. Nevertheless, we're pretty good at figuring out how to make those things happen. And you can imagine, for the sorts of problems that are this complex, there probably would be specialized computers to do these tasks. It's not likely at this point that this is something that would end up being in your home. After all, we have plenty of programming and processing power as it is. But where this sort of method would actually take off isn't in complicated physics problems or computer graphic problems or mathematical modeling problems. In fact, it probably would find its best uses in biology, where you need specific devices within an organism or within a very small or restricted environment that can perform logical operations for you. An example would be something to monitor the onset of an illness or its progress during treatment. Furthermore, cells that can be programmed that can sense and make calculated answers can also be excellent environmental monitors. Imagine being able to place sensors smaller than dust in an environment to keep track of water quality, air quality, pollution, or other contaminants. Something like this could easily allow us to monitor and regulate our environment and correct damage when it's happening. Here's another thought. Suppose we make cyborgs or artificial organisms. This would be the way to make their brains out of biological computing elements. So now for Eliza. Please introduce the break. I'm Eliza. This is Talk Universe, and we will return after the break. There are more interesting things to hear in a few minutes. Some people might object to the thought of pursuing biological computation. They might say, well, we can do it in silicon, or we got, you know, uh, quantum computing coming along. Why would we pursue it in biology? Well, the fact is, we would never say, well, now that we have crayons, we don't need other types of ink or printing. You see, the more different ways we have to solve problems, the more things we understand that we can solve. Biological computing is just one more medium that allows us another way of handling problems in our real world and of addressing things that we never even thought of before. Many times when we go into researching a problem, we'll discover something by accident that has applications we would never have imagined. We didn't actually set up to look for this particular solution, but when it presents itself, we realize how useful it is. Biological computing can do a lot of things. For instance, right now, we can 3D print organs. But what if we print biological computers to substitute for the part of the insulin-producing cells in your body that aren't functioning properly? Even without having a deeper understanding of how the system's working, we can print something now that can help people immediately rather than having to wait years for the proper solution, which will eventually come along. Sometimes the tools we come up with are stopgap measures, sure, but it can help an awful lot of people. In other cases, we realize that understanding that process leads us to the actual answer we needed all along. One of the problems with 3D printing organs that we are aware of right now is the inability to print neural tissue in it properly. If you were to 3D print a muscle, you would have to have the wiring, the neural wiring in place that actually makes the muscle move. Neurons have a long extension of their body similar to a hair or a wire called an axon. 
We can't produce this right now in 3D printing, and even if we could, we certainly couldn't direct it to be laid properly into the tissue at this time. You see, you can't print a neuron in pieces to get it where you want it to be. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. However, if we had the ability to create biological computing elements, we might be able to knit them together in such a way as to guide the later insertion of neurons or even to act as surrogate neurons. Here's a potential mechanism. Suppose we calibrate these cells to produce nerve growth factor, a hormone that makes nerves follow them and grow into place. Perhaps we could 3D print the proper biological computing elements that detect what they're supposed to be doing and secrete this compound that induces the neural tissue to grow into place instead of having to print it there. This is a possible solution. Although we don't really know if it will work, it's certainly worth investigating. Biological computers could also have novel methods of input and output that we haven't considered for actual computing. For example, there are many organisms that can emit light in various colors or change color. Suppose we had biological computing elements included in our surroundings so that they could change color in the presence of a toxin or of a resource. We could actually spray a thin mist of biologically engineered computing elements over an area and have them survey for minerals that we need. We'd be able to take samples and get a colorful response showing exactly where the resources are located without harming the environment in any way whatsoever. Furthermore, we could even engineer organisms that were smart enough to understand when conditions might not be safe for driving and change the color of the road surface in response to this. Suppose it were just slightly slippery, slightly cold, slightly moist, a little more hazardous to drive on than you'd normally be used to. These organisms could indicate it by changing colored stripes or patterns on the roadbed, and you would know that you needed to slow down or be a little more careful. You could even come up with biological computing elements that could detect toxins in your food or drink and would change color to indicate their presence. Imagine the power going off on your refrigerator while you're gone for a couple of days and then coming back on. You might never know that the food inside had spoiled. Well, obviously we have computing methods of looking at these things these days, but you might not always have that information available if the network were down or if you don't have a smart refrigerator. These biological computing and sensing devices could actually show you which foods were unsafe for consumption so you could get rid of them. Or a little farther out, they could even act to prevent the growth of unwanted organisms, or even encourage those that you did want. You see, this gives us a whole new range of control over our environment and the elements within it. Biological computing can give us a lot of advantages. Just imagine organisms that can be sprayed on a wall so that graffiti won't work. They would recognize the addition of paints or defacing elements and break them down or become repellent to them. Properly made and programmed, they could act as sterilizing agents to keep surfaces clean and non-bacteriologically contaminated. They can also help us, as mentioned previously, clean up things in our environment that we're not aware of. Right now, drugs that are in our water system inadvertently are a major problem. They're causing violations of the normal order of biological change in organisms in the wild. For instance, the increased levels of hermaphroditism in polar bears was linked to drugs in the water, estrogens, and other sex-modifying compounds. Producing these organisms to go into the environment and break down these molecules would be a fairly simple task once we'd figured out exactly how to program them properly. Or on a whimsical note, imagine programming them to influence the growth of foods so that the outside of a fruit, such as an orange or a melon or a cucumber, 
actually grows the logo of the company responsible for producing it. We're really at the very infancy of such a technology, yet there are hundreds or thousands of applications that, practical or not, are sure to emerge within the next few years. But what about really practical applications? Presently, we use a lot of fertilizers, insecticides, and other chemical compounds to produce our food. Suppose you could program an organism smart enough to know which plants were growing in a specific area and to prevent some of them from growing. Think of something that could prevent weeds from growing in an area such as your garden without affecting or poisoning anything in the environment around it. Now you could have a harmless marker compound, it could be little more than colored chalk dust perhaps, that could be recognized by these organisms, and it would allow them to stay confined to a specific area so their effects are controlled. You could actually have organisms that increase the water-holding capacity of the soil during dry months, which would give your plants the buffer that they need so that you don't have to worry about watering them. Missing a day or two of watering might not do any harm in a case such as this. Even simple biological computing elements give us the ability to bring many of our passive materials effectively to life. They might not be able to repair themselves, in some cases they could, but overall they certainly would be able to inform us if they were near a situation where they were about to break. One of the things that's important to realize is that biological computing isn't just the answering of a question or the detecting of a condition and making a decision about it. It's often the ability to take action as well. When we have elements capable of sensing things in our environment or around us, and then informing us about it or reaching a conclusion about it, we often will put a mechanism in place for it to take action. We like to be able to have intervention, even if it's just us throwing the switch or turning the knob. But in some cases, it's smart to have a system able to act on its own. Now, imagine a system that's capable of detecting certain conditions of our environment, not only informing us, but also taking some immediate action to alleviate it. When we look at biocomputing, we see the ability, as I stated earlier, to bring some of our systems basically to life, to make them sensible and sensate. So we look at things like foods or the control of our growth of crops or damage to our environment, and we see obvious and immediate applications. But there are so many things around us we haven't even thought of yet that we could do with biological computing. For me, I see an almost immediate bridge to get to nanotechnology. If we can program these organisms to think, or at least calculate, sense and reach conclusions and possibly control the situation, then we've already got 90% of what we need to reach the stage where nanotechnology, controlled molecular activity, can be within our grasp. After all, it isn't as if we can take some tweezers and poke some molecules around. We need some sort of a set of gloves we can put on that allows us to manipulate things at that scale. Programmable computing elements made of biological entities such as cells could allow us that sort of control right now. Oh, Eliza? Yes, sir? What is our book recommendation for this week? This week's book is Biological Computation. It was written by Ehud Lam and Paul Unger. This book was published in May 2011 by Chapman and Hall CRC Mathematical and Computational Biology. Now, this is actually a rather ambitious book for a lot of people, but it has a lot of the very interesting fundamentals, and it tells you a lot about, well, biological computing, how it has achieved some of the elements involved, some of the thinking they had to go through to reach the stage of control we have now. It was published back in 2011. However, in the last six years, there's been so much going on 
that a later book might leave a lot of readers in the dust. So I wanted a book that had some of the fundamentals from a few years ago to make it much, much simpler to understand. I got to admit, there are a lot of things we talk about on the show that have such complexity that many people are kind of lost. And that's a shame because I'm trying to get information out there so everybody can understand it. So a book from six years ago made a lot more sense in this case. There's also another issue here, and it's this. Most people who work in academia, researchers, scientists, and developers, are not really aware of what people outside of their field know. They assume you know certain things, and they start talking on that level. Much of the publication that I see in the later months and years tends to be so complicated, it's exceptionally difficult to find something at the level of a primer, to be honest. And so I sometimes have to be very picky about which books I recommend, specifically on this basis. Um, Look, we're not all rocket scientists, and I know that. And it doesn't do anybody a service to talk about something they don't understand or to present stuff that they, they just can't get to because they're not familiar with it. So I'm going to try uh, a lot harder to find books that are a little more digestible. Um, there has been some feedback about it. But nevertheless, if you want to know about biological computing, this is a good book for it. Oh, Eliza. Tell me what you need. How do our listeners contact us? Send your questions or comments to admin. A-D-M-I-N, at talkuniverse.org. You can also submit your material to talkuniverse6 at gmail.com. If you go to the Talk Universe website under contacts, you can reach us directly. Very good. I appreciate that. Well, you're doing a good job as a co-host. Thank you you for that. That sounds reasonable enough. Not very modest, is she? Oh, well, I better change the program a little. Now, I can only imagine what the changes in biological computing will bring to us uh, might be. And I mentioned a little bit of it, controlling things in our environment and letting us know when things are wrong and actually taking corrective action, helping us uh, preserve the freshness of our food or indicating when something isn't safe, road conditions, uh, something in the refrigerator too long, you bachelors know what I'm talking about. Uh, There are a lot of things, such as weeding our gardens or preventing weeds from growing without having to use Roundup or something along those lines. That would be real benefits right away. We would take a lot of pesticides out of our foods. And the thing about biological computing is it can be done with organisms that are completely edible. Um, Think about that. When you're done with the programming and computing job, you can eat the computer. Not that I'm saying you'd want to. Um, I'm sure that in most cases you wouldn't do that. But having something you can spray on the road to tell you when it's unsafe or spray on a building to say when the stress is about to cause the concrete to crack, you know, that's great. Um, And the other thing is being able to have things that will prevent certain species from growing in your garden or actually encourage the growth of some in specific areas. That has a lot of applications. The uses in 3D printing for uh, creating tissues and organs, wow, you know, right there alone, the medical field increasing the state of our health and our well-being. Um, There's just an untold market in that. First person to come up with a biological device that helps your health is sure to make a fortune. And, you know, um, with CRISPR technology and with the sorts of things we have out there in the hands of hackers and, you know, garage tinkerers, well, it's just a short time before we'll see benefits of all sorts spring up. I know that I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what we can do with it. Imagine plastic smart enough to know when it's not in use and breaking itself down. Um, That 
It could be something that we could really put into use right away. We talk about cleaning up the oceans. Maybe smart computing elements could figure out exactly what is needed to help organisms grow, to regrow the fish populations, and to take uh, oil and solvents and pollutants out of the water. So yes, I can see worlds of possibility with biological computing. Now, obviously, I haven't even touched on a lot of um, particular fields, and transhumanism is one of them. We know that we could uh, inject biological computing elements into our bodies to keep track of our health, but we could also use them as sensors to extend the range of what we're capable of. Uh, Imagine having just a little bit more adrenaline when you need it, or something that eliminates pain or helps you heal a little faster, and it's there all the time just waiting to be triggered. And on that note, I think it's uh, time for us to end this particular segment and get ready for the other one. Eliza? What can I do for you? It's time to introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe. I'm Eliza, your co-host. We will be right back. That's right. You're listening to Talk Universe. I am Sir Charles Schultz, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Talk Universe. Um, Let's wrap this up gracefully. We've looked at some of the potential for biological computing. Um, And I'm always the sort of person who likes to look at both sides of something, and I've talked very much about the positive side. I'd also like to point out that it's very easy to subvert this sort of technology for ill gains, uh, for bad purposes. Um, And spying is the very first thing that comes to mind. Um, A few years ago, it was discovered that uh, by using gold nanoparticles and putting them in fertilizers used in crops in uh, foreign countries, those particles would be taken up into the crops and then with nothing more than little low-level radio waves, you could kill all those plants remotely. Well, just think. Um, If you've got biological computing, you also could do some pretty vicious things. And so it brings to mind the fact that for every tool we have, there's some idiot who will misuse it. Um, We need to have some sort of ability to, oh, I don't know, monitor the initial stages of this now is being developed. But the fact is, um, you know, terrorist organizations, the military, governments, people who are intent on doing something will find a way to do it. And there's not much we can do about that. Um, So what could you do with it? Well, I can think of um, perhaps something that turns sugars in foods toxic and then your food becomes poisonous, or something that intentionally makes the roads slippery to increase the number of accidents, or something that uh, eats the brake fluid in a vehicle and makes the brakes not work. Uh, there are a lot of things that just in uh, you know a few moments of idle thought you can come up with that would be pretty terrible. So as with any technology, anything can be misused. And Biological computing has just as much potential for evil as it does for good. You know, it isn't the tool, it's how you use it. It is the intent behind it, often, that really is important. So what I would suggest is it's quite possible to put biological computing monitors in the environment that would look for, um, well, let's call it vicious code. Just as we have antivirus systems in our computers, we could just as easily have biological computing elements that look for and defuse such things and notify us. 
So for everything that you can think of that has good uses, there obviously are bad uses, but we also have policing uses that allow us to get around some of those things to protect us. Um, it's going to get complicated, and that much I can say right up front. No matter what we do, we always end up with complications. The biological world has been in an arms race for four billion years. I mean, you look at uh, the defenses and systems that plants and animals and bacteria have evolved, and you see very rapidly that this isn't something unique to human thinking. This is something that's been going on in the world all along. So let's look at a couple more positive things. Oh, Eliza. What can I do for you? Introduce the Singularity Watch, please. I could read a listener question. Let's do the Singularity Watch. I'm Eliza, and this is Singularity Watch on Talk Universe. Fantastic. And what are we talking about? Perhaps I am mistaken, but I believe that it was the Singularity Watch. Read the first Singularity Watch item. Bizarre mini-brains offer a fascinating new look at the brain. This article was published in Singularity Hub. It was written by Shelley Fan, May 16th. That's very cool. They use skin cells to turn into stem cells to make mini-brains. And Eliza, what is this article about? Perhaps I am off-target. But I believe that it was an article about miniature brains grown from stem cells. Very good. It's my pleasure. This is a story where, well, it fell so much in line with what we're looking at that I couldn't turn it down as a Singularity Watch article. Um, basically, they have figured out how to grow miniature brains starting from skin cells. Now, what's, what's happening is very simple. Um, in the past, scientists have tried to grow uh, brain tissue and tried to make it organized so they could study the development and how it operates and see if it's actually useful. And here is something that they've discovered they could do. Um, they, it's just an amazing development. They can look at developmental disorders like autism, and they can do it in a Petri dish. So there were two studies um, published last week in the journal Nature and basically, it's uh, in one study, the scientists took skin cells from a patient with Timothy syndrome, which is a developmental disorder of the brain that ends up a lot of times in childhood death. And they grew the skin cells into brain balls to study where and how the developmental brain went off track. Now, in another paper, a, uh, researchers used cutting-edge technology to profile the inhabitants of brain balls as they matured for eight months in a dish. and. Some of the blobs of neural tissue actually contained retinal neurons that normally allow us to see, so it's like a little ball of a brain with an eye. Now, this is where it's going. You take a sample of your skin tissue, you develop it into stem cells with a little um, chemical treatment, and then when it's a stem cell, you give it the right uh, nutrients and chemical messages, the signaling agents, and they become um, into blobs of brain tissue. And they uh, grow little blobs of brain. So basically, this is work that allows us to literally grow new neural tissue from your own skin cells in one sense, uh, which is pretty amazing in its own right. I mean, if you've got uh, a neurodegenerative disorder, we can now take a skin sample turn it into stem cells, and then coax it into growing neurons. Well, that, if that were the whole piece of news in itself, 
would be pretty exciting because you can inject those neural uh, cells into your spinal cord or into your brain and they would find the target areas and replace it and repair it. But here, you've actually got tiny brains and it isn't just random, but they grow pretty much the way they would in a fetus. And so you're getting the sorts of structures in this brain ball that you would normally expect to see in the growth of an actual human brain in a fetus. So they call them cerebral organoids, and a lot of the work's being done at um, Stanford. And this lets them see exactly how the brain develops. Now, in a show where we're talking about organic computing and the fact that they've made rat neuron brains, here we see the, uh, the work to actually grow a brain, which, you know, is a little creepy. Um, but it also shows that we're right on track for replacing just about any organ you'd want. Now, they have harvested um, more than 80,000 brain balls in the work they've done. And they've looked at the gene expression profiles. And what they're looking at is how the neurons, when they're young, like stem cells, um, tell other neurons how to develop and what's supposed to happen. And they use DNA to match the uh, identity of the newly, developed, the newly developed tissues and get a snapshot of its development as it's happening. But they've also found that uh, glial cells show up and non-neuron cells, those are glial cells are the support cells that uh, help other neurons function. They show up in the growth. So this is really amazing. Um, it even forms um, the highway that connects the two halves of the brain, the two hemispheres together, which is known as the corpus callosum. Now, they do have, um, wow, they do have the ability to track the electrical activity. The, the brain balls that grew retinal cells and, and understand something, the eye, the retina of the eye is actually a part of the brain that extends out. Uh, the ones that grew retinal cells actually did respond to light. They don't see, but they do respond with uh, light. And they're looking at what they can do with these brain balls, not just for research. They're, they're fusing them together to see uh, how their identities mature. So this is, this is pretty wild. Uh, they're literally, they literally are growing little balls of brain tissue from a sample of skin cells. Um, but again, you know, they're going to learn a lot. Um, they're asking questions, could they eventually see or think or feel? Now, let's face a fact. If it grows into a brain, then it's wired to be a human being. If it's a human uh, skin sample they're looking at, and they are, then clearly this would be, um, well, a human brain. It wouldn't have all the developmental cues that are necessary for the growth of the body. But, man, I think that this, um, this is thin ice we're treading on in this particular technology. There are a lot of benefits, but there's also a big moral issue here that I don't think anybody's really um, taking seriously. Anyway, that is the Singularity Watch article that I wish to share with you this week. We're growing balls of brain tissue. I think that uh, what this really brings to me is a little talk about moral responsibility. We know that we have the capability to do almost anything we can imagine, but we also have the capability to judge what we're doing in the light of right and wrong. Now, I obviously don't have a problem with understanding how our brains develop, how they work. 
I think, though, when you reach a certain level of complexity in the development of a brain, you basically have an organism in waiting with a mind in waiting. You have, perhaps, the beginnings, the flickerings of a conscious being. And so, at a certain level of experimentation with a brain, in particular human brains, I feel that we really have to stop and look long and hard at what we're doing. If this were the brain of a smaller, simpler animal, then I would have no issues with experimenting on something that never sees the light of day, that is not going to be a great symbolic thinker. It doesn't have the ability to ask questions about the self and the universe. And You know, when you start playing around with the human brain and potentially a human mind, you really are putting yourself in, let's say, a gray area real fast. And again, I have a hard time um, arguing against learning and research and understanding how things work. But at the same time, I certainly wouldn't say, well, let's take that, that fetus and wire it up to this machine and do horrible things to it or do research with it. With the, uh, you know, with the thought in mind that, well, it's never going to grow up. It's not going to have a chance to live a normal life. Well, you know, man, that, uh, that should make anybody a little squeamish. Um, in a medical procedure, you often are dealing with live patients, and there is a big difference, and I understand that. But at what stage of development in the complexity of a brain does it acquire a mind? Um, one of the things that I was going to point out with some of the earlier brain um, simulations and the biological computing is that when you start simulating a system in that brain, and you wrap the ability of the brain to perceive what it's doing back into itself, you basically are creating the condition of self-awareness. You're looking at the brain monitoring what the brain is doing. And isn't that exactly what we do? So I would be very cautious about pursuing this sort of research too far along in the developmental stage. I really would. Um, you know, it's, it's wonderful to think that we can take a sample of your skin or your fat cells and convert them into neural tissue and repair, and repair damage to your brain or your body or regrow a limb. It's one thing to grow an arm or a kidney. It's another to grow the computer itself, the brain. And I, um, wow, I'm not even really sure exactly how to put it. I want us to know about it. I know there's a great deal to be learned about it, but at the same time, you're growing a system that potentially could suffer. And I think that that's something we really have to consider. Um, I would not say moratorium. I would say a strict limit on the size and complexity. Because we know there's a line between a single cell, which really doesn't think or have an identity, and a human being, which certainly does. The question is, where do we cross that line? And um, boy, that's a tough one. Anyway, I think that um, we do need to make this a better world, and the biological computing field could certainly help us do that. Oh, Eliza, it's time to end the show. Thank you for listening to Talk Universe. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. Please listen again next week.
Absolutely. You know, this has been a great show tonight. And next week we're going to talk about, uh, well, it's going to be an open line show. We're going to talk about curing cancer. And we need your uh, input and your questions. Contact us. Send them to us. Let's have a rousing discussion. Thank you for listening from our palatial recording studios high on our mountain lair on a remote volcanic island. This has been Talk Universe. I'm your host, Sir Charles Schultz. Have a wonderful evening.